Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's working. Talk Recorded live. Hello, welcome to the WCBBN podcast. Uh, today's date is January 28, 2015. Uh, my name is Kevin Dan, owner-operator of Wildcatch Nuisance Animal Control out of northeastern Michigan. Um, I have a co-host. His name is Will. How you doing tonight, Will? Oh, fighting a little bit of a scratchy throat, but I'm alive and I'm here. <laughs> Super duper. Tell us a little bit about yourself there. Oh, I'm the owner-operator of Langman's Wildlife and Pest Control in Terre Haute, Indiana, and uh, just kind of got together and decided we'd want to do a podcast here. So tonight we're going to have some fun, though. we got to actually have an, an arranged guest, so you don't get to hear me and Kevin just babble on. So <laughs> tonight we got Eric Arnold from WCT. Uh, is he even here yet? Anybody check on that? I, I, I thought he was talking to us when I told him that I – uh, had a stretch of imagination that he had a uh, wealth of knowledge as long as my arm. <laughs> you, you didn't mute everybody, did you? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. It, it looks like it's uh, ready to rock and roll. You hear, Eric? Yes, I'm here. All right, there we go. <laughs> <clears throat> Please raise your hand so I can see you. <laughs> there you go. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, I'll give you guys a heads up. With a scratchy throat, I may be in and out tonight, so... I'm, I'll do the best I can, though. <laughs> oh, so, tell us a little bit about the magazine for those who don't know anything about it. <laughs> well, WCT Group publishes WCT Magazine. Uh, we bought it from uh, Rob Erickson back in 2012. It's currently the only magazine that's dedicated to the wildlife control industry. Uh, it was originally started back in 1994. So it's been around for quite some time. It's a bi-monthly publication, so there's six issues a year, and we do both print and digital copies. And the biggest difference between the two is that the digital copies, all of the hyperlinks are activated on it. So you can go ahead and click on an advertiser's ad and be taken to their website, or in an article if there's specific information uh, listed for, uh, say, you know, you can go to this website for more information. On the digital version, you can click on that, and it will take you to that website. Cool. <laughs> I like that. Oh, so where do you get most of your topics from? I mean, just you just pull them out of the air, check them out on the Internet? or It, it depends. Um, sometimes I do have to pull them out of the air. Uh, I really do rely on submissions from the subscribers. I don't want this to be my magazine, even though I'm the owner of it, the editor or the publisher of it. I really want it to be an industry magazine. So I need the readers to submit articles and photos for me for publishing. And we do purchase the photos and the articles. So unlike some other publications where you send it in and you just get an attaboy mention, we actually do pay for what we publish. 
Uh, so oh, there are certain I things. Get, i got to get on my desk. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- there are certain things that I do try for each issue. Um, and so there are certain recurring areas. Like we do have four column writers. So you're always going to see information from them. Um, and then uh, you're going to start seeing more information on air rifles for wildlife control purposes. Uh, and aside from that, it's one of those things I look at and go, the next issue coming up is the March-April issue. That's what I'm working on right now. And so that's kind of the Canada Goose bat start time frame. So we're going to see if we can focus some articles towards that. What I really try not to do, um, even though sometimes I can't help it, but what I really don't like doing is in like the September, October issue, running an article on groundhog because groundhogs are more of a spring issue. And so most people then would take that information and forget about it by the time spring comes around. Same thing with I don't like running articles on uh, catching beaver under the ice in May. (laughs) Because most people, now the Canadian subscribers, that's different, and we are an international publication. We do have subscribers in Africa, in uh, Great Britain, uh, Canada, so it's one of those things that, you know, you have to take a, a big overall approach to it. But I do try to keep things pretty specific. And I did have a complaint about the cover photos not matching the content inside the magazine. And I really do try to match the cover photos photos to at least an article or two in the magazine. But once again, I can't always do that. Now you've just got me wondering what the guy in Africa is wondering about beavers under ice. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> wondering about beavers under ice uh, was the one in Africa right now is describing for is he's actually a doctoral candidate who's doing work with black-backed jackals. Ah, so, you know, that makes so sense. So <laughs> he wants information on coyote work and seeing if he can implement that over into what's going on with the jackals. And I'm hoping to get an article or two from him uh, throughout the time frame because he's also working with one of the cat species over there. So I think it would make some real interesting reading, something that a lot of us don't think about, which is how do these other countries do their damage control? Well, you, mostly you would think a gun, but <laughs> probably just like well, here, there's laws everywhere, so you never know what they're allowed to do. <laughs> you do have laws everywhere, and a lot of what they do in Europe is they use foot-sized, or what we would consider foot-sized traps, but they're even bigger, and they use those as body-gripping traps to kill the animal. Wow. Just imagine the size of that trying to set it. <laughs> well, exactly, and so... Um, France, for instance, um, uh, Australia, there's a lot of different places where this is considered normal in terms of wildlife control because actually they have a lot of laws on using firearms. Most European countries are extremely strict with firearms and either require a special permit if it is over a certain amount of energy or you're not allowed to use them at all. Yeah, I, I remember a lot Germany, of countries just burn, ban them totally. So. Yeah, Germany, you're not allowed to go out and do any type of call shooting. And then if you look at um, the Great Britain area, well, they have a rule that for, like, rabbits um, 
and other pest species, they can use air rifles, but those air rifles cannot generate over 12 foot-pounds of energy at the muzzle. And if you go over that 12 foot-pounds of energy, or you want to use, for instance, a 22 rimfire, you actually need to get a firearm permit. Wow. Can you imagine all the steps you got to take over there? <laughs> Boy, well, am I glad we live here. <laughs> exactly. It, but little things like that are what I really want to include in the magazine so that everybody starts getting a world approach to our industry instead of just thinking about that one little, you know, corner in America that they live. Oh, yeah, I've noticed that just from the groups and the Facebook pages and everybody I meet, it, it just changes state to state, north to south. I've seen Canadian guys doing it completely differently than we do. I mean, <laughs> I, exactly. it's interesting to see the world view instead of just our corner. Well, and that's where you have to start with defining what exactly is wildlife control and who is a wildlife control operator. Is it an individual who only works in an urban environment, only uses cage traps and catches specific species? Is it an individual who does nothing but ranch management, so they're going after feral hogs, they're going after coyotes, they're going after bobcats? Is it the person that does beaver work? Is it the person that just does Canada goose work? Is it a combination Mm -hmm. of everybody? Do you have to charge a fee to be considered a wildlife control operator? Or does it start with the homeowner who's putting out decon for a mouse that is going through and causing damage to his home? Hmm. So until you start with defining what exactly is a wildlife control operator, everybody's going to have their own concepts and ideas, which then is going to influence their moral belief systems and their thoughts for what should be allowed and what should not be allowed. Very true. And now you've got me wondering, what do you think is a wildlife control operator? (laughs) I think a wildlife control operator is any person who is handling a wildlife conflict. And that conflict can be um, economic loss. It can be public health and safety. It could be where the animal is interfering with that person's livelihood. So, for instance, you can have robins that are dive-bombing a person as they walk out of their um, front door on their porch, that's going to be, for me, considered a wildlife conflict. Okay, the coyote that gets in somebody's backyard, if it prevents the person from walking out of their house because they're scared to death that the coyote's going to eat them, that's a wildlife conflict. Now, how you resolve those issues is a totally different answer. But for me, the uh, operator starts with the homeowner and goes all the way up to the paid professional. Well, pretty much ended my conversation on that. Damn. (laughs) Oh, come on, Will. Oh, yeah, I'm not on my game. No, for me personally, to me, when you say the three words, wildlife control operator, to me, I mean, I grew up doing this. This is what I know. So I'm thinking the guy that's doing it for a living, not a trapper, not just some guy taking care of a bug, but he's the guy being hired to take care of the problem. So regardless of what it is, to me, the three words stand for the guy in business. 
and that right there stresses my point. For us to move forward in this industry, <clears throat> one of the first things that we really need to do is come to a definition of what is an operator. I like this already. Kevin, what do you think? I, we had a talk with this, Eric and I. Um, we won't oh. name names, but uh, <laughs> for instance, uh, this is just a for instance about a wildlife control operator. Uh, this fellow that I know, um, like I said, I won't name names, but he is more of an animal control person than he is a nuisance control person. So yeah. what I'm saying is, is that he'll get called on a job, and the next thing you know, he's trapping, let's say he's called out on raccoon. Uh, he's trapping a 15 raccoon around a bird feeder. Well, yeah. to me, that's not a wildlife control operator. Yeah, I agree with that. That's, that's so to speak, a standard trapper using, so to speak, wildlife control operators techniques or tools, not techniques. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there is that gray area there that I feel that, uh, you know, even though he's licensed as a nuisance control operator or wildlife control, that, uh, and he calls himself that, but the bottom line, he does a lot of uh, animal control than he does nuisance. So that's my view well, of it. But he's not really even doing animal control. No, he's what just he's removing is, everything. Well, it's population management. Yeah, that's it is that wildlife management tool that the game departments want to see because that's what's taking your surplus animals. Now, again, is there something wrong with a person doing what Kevin just described? Unfortunately for me, I have a lot of yes-no beliefs. And it comes down to, first off, what does the customer want to have happen? We've all Anybody that's been in business for five years or longer has had a customer that will not listen to your advice and True. will say, this is what I expect to have done. I want every animal in a square mile caught and removed. <laughs> of course, they don't want to pay for that. It's <laughs> like I get to meet the person that says, I need this handled, and I don't care what it costs until you hand them the estimate. Oh. And all of a sudden, oh, my God, how can it be so expensive? Yeah, we will let you know. <laughs> right. For somebody that said, I don't care what it costs, you know, what exactly do you mean? Which, what they're saying is, I don't care what it costs, provided it's within my value of the situation. So if I hear that raccoon pelts are being sold for $5, and I think I have 10 raccoons, I'm more than happy to go ahead and spend $50 to resolve the issue. Oh, yeah. The I don't, reality I, of it is, is it's not going to cost no $50 to remove 10 raccoons. It's going to be closer probably to 350 to $1,000 based upon everything that has to happen. And that's where you need that education to come in and say, well, I can do this, but is this the best solution for your conflict? You know, when Kevin and I were talking, first question I have every time I hear about guys tracking around bird feeders is, did you tell them take the bird feeder down? That should be number one. You know, well, now you're getting into almost the best management practices. When you have a conflict, you know, if it's a black bear, almost immediately everybody goes, 
take the bird feeder down. That's what's drawing the bear to your property. <laughs> but when it's a raccoon, when it's a possum, <clears throat> very rarely does that ever get set. And so you need to take a look at each situation, what's causing the problem. And when I do my bat workshops, I talk about this a lot. In most cases, the animals are the symptom. They are not the problem. That's correct. If you keep addressing the symptom, you're never going to have a solution. You need to identify and address the problem. I.e., that hole in your roof that you never fix that they're going in and out of. Well, and it could be the hole. It could be that here's a tree for them to climb up or the construction of your building allows them easy access to it. It could be that it's not even the hole. They're using the hole. It's you're dumping 50 pounds of dog food at night on your porch to feed the raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. So, well, and, and I, that's... Oh, go, go ahead, on. Eric. <laughs> oh, actually, I, I wanted to ask a question. I hope I'm not out of line or nothing. But what can we do as professionals? Like, I, I, I fully agree with you 100% that um, what we do needs to be defined. And, and I think that, and it's something that I've thought for a long time, to help legitimize our industry because I just, I, I find it kind of strange that, uh, perfect example, I fixed a, a leaky faucet in our house about a month ago, but I would in no certain terms call myself a plumber. But um, anybody who's ever caught a squirrel or a raccoon at their grandmother's house is a wildlife control professional. So what, well, you know, like I, I understand what you're saying, that that's one thing we need to do. Well, what do we need to do in order to do that? Like what well, steps can we take? Yeah, the first thing that we need to do as an industry is we need to get organized. And that's where there's always been all kinds of conflict. Um, I was the secretary of NUCOA for years. I was president of NUCOA until I stepped down because I did not agree with the direction that they were going. NUCOA still has a purpose. And I'm not trying to say that everybody needs to join NUCOA. I'm not saying people should not join NUCOA. What I'm saying is that what we need to do is, again, take a look big picture and define what is the problem. The first problem that we have is that it's the states themselves that mandate what's the problem in their state when it comes to animals and how those states or what's going to be allowed in that state to resolve that problem. So in order to address those issues, we need to have state organizations. And those organizations need to have individuals actively participating and investing in their industry. And this is where this all starts falling apart. Everybody agrees that, yes, it's great to have a state organization until you start saying, okay, now we need people to volunteer their time for it. Then it turns into, well, I don't have time to do this. I'm running a business. Well, I can relate to this very well because when I was secretary of NUCOA, I was spending 40 to 60 hours a week doing industry work which meant that my business suffered greatly. Why did I do it? I did it because, and I still believe this, if I wouldn't have done it, we would not have an industry today. There are all kinds of outside influences 
that want to regulate our industry, they want to affect our industry because they don't like what we do. And because we're such a small group, we're very easy to be taken advantage of. But if you take a look at bat, for instance, and you take a look at bat exclusion, our industry is being pretty proactive right now with getting the word out, you don't kill bats, you save bats. Here's best techniques for resolving bat conflict. But how many operators do we really have? It's estimated that there's between 1,000 and 5,000 wildlife control operators in the continental U.S. Throw the pest control guys on top of it, and that puts us to about 10,000 people or companies for working with wildlife. Now, here's my question to you. How many contracting companies do you have in your service area that are going through removing insulation, ripping off roofs, uh, ripping off siding, taking the animals out of chimneys during birthing season, killing the animal, not saying anything to the homeowner, so that they can get the job done and move on. How many roof tear-offs have you seen where there might be a bat colony during that birthing season? I guarantee that there's literally tens of thousands of companies that are affecting animals more than our industry ever will. But because we are the small, low guys on the totem pole, we're the ones that have the targets on our back. That's why it's so important for everybody to start getting organized in their state, getting proactive with the regulatory authorities in that state, saying, you know what, um, before the, the call we were talking about, the trap chap law. Well, some people have a law that says that, you know, once an animal's caught, that that animal has to be removed within 12 hours. Some people have an eight-hour rule that once the animal's caught, that it has to be removed with, within eight hours. When you're running a business, that's ludicrous. I'm all for protecting the animal. On the flip side of the coin, I'm also being realistic with what a business can and cannot do. And so that's where the state organizations need to step up and say, we need to work on this problem. What are other options that we have? Can we do a 24-hour trap check instead? Can we do it where it's 15 hours to remove a caught animal? The biggest problem that you'll notice if you start researching this with all of our laws concerning wildlife is that you are guilty and must prove yourself innocent. That's how most of the laws are written, and it needs to be the other way around. Well, on that 24-hour uh, check, I think it should be one calendar day. That's what it is well, in our states, at least. <laughs> And that's one of the problems that you have. I've said for years that if these groups would actually look at these laws that we're supposed to be working underneath, if they wanted to get real picky, they could come after us for a lot of things that we're doing. And I'll pick on Ohio, where I'm at. We just implemented some new rules here about two years ago. Um, it used to say 24-hour trap check. And again, if you think about 24-hour trap check, that's really physically impossible if you're doing a long trapping period. Because every day 
you don't even have 24 hours. You have, what is it, 23 hours, 59 or 58 minutes and 26 seconds or something stupid like that. Right. <laughs> but if you look you at know, it. <clears throat> well, if you go and if you say, I set this trap at 8 o'clock in the morning, and if you have a 24-hour trap check rule, that means by law you have to check that trap before 8 o'clock in the morning. And then if you check that trap at 7.30 in the morning, you now have to be back before 7.30 the next day. Right. If you, you know, and it's just the rule of redundancy, and that needs to be changed. And the best way to change things is to get your states organized, get a group of guys together, like I was saying, realize that there is no silver bullet for doing this, just like there's no silver bullet for doing wildlife control work, it's going to be an investment in time for your future. And that's what's going to be needed. You're going to have to be willing to educate the public, educate the game officers who are enforcing these laws, establish a relationship, work with them through a give-and-take process in order to implement the changes that we need to see. I'm just speechless now. <laughs> How do you follow well, I, up something like that? <laughs> well, I, I have a, I, I have a question, but I don't want to. If I, if I'm bogarting it, someone can tell me to shut up. <clears throat> I, uh, okay, so you have a simple, um, you know, not very smart redneck like myself here in South Carolina. You said it, not us. <laughs> how, how does one like myself start that process? Because I, I, this is something that really interests me because, I mean, I'll give you an example. In South Carolina, you can't use conibears um, outside of water. Um, Can I stop you right there, Kevin? Is it you cannot cannot use bears, or is it you cannot use body-gripping traps? It's conibears. Because in the the rules, it it specifically says, oh, actually it says... um, Snares or conibears. I guess when whoever wrote the rules didn't um, didn't know what a tube trap was, so we just kind of let that slide. Um, but well, you know, I'm going to stop you right there, okay? Because a conibear is a brand of body gripping trap. Okay. So if you it says conibear, well, this is where lawyers are really handy. Okay, if it says conibear, you could actually fight that by putting up, say, a Duke body gripping trap, because that's not a conibear. If it's not made by Victor, because Victor bought the uh, name brand conibear, if it's not made by Victor, it cannot be a conibear. Well, that's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but now be careful. You can kill yourself on that one, too. (laughs) Exactly. Will's 100% correct here because most people don't realize that that is a name brand. And so what you're fighting here is a technicality. Well, but what's funny is is that, you know, I've I've done work with DNR here in South Carolina. I've, I've, I've done a lot of the guys for years. And what's funny, and the reason why, you know, we've always talked about changing that law because – I will use conibears for squirrels. Um, there are certain times been where we'll use conibears because the DNR officers have said, hey, look, 
if it if it's at a point where you feel it's necessary, just do it. Don't worry about it. It's like, well, it's against the law. Well, it doesn't matter. Just go ahead and do it, Dax. It's not a big deal. You're fine. Go ahead. It's like, well, you know, well, why can't we just have that changed instead of you saying go break the law? What I would do, well, I would talk to the head of DNR up there in your state and ask them to try to pass it through their uh, Senate. Well, that, that's well, not the DNR to those. <laughs> and here's the issue with this, because the first thing that you have to figure out is, is this an administrative rule that you need to address, or is this in the legislature? Okay, for instance, Florida, in their um, revised code, it specifically states that if you are removing any animal from a structure, and this is what uh, used to be there. I don't know if this has been changed or not. Uh, and they went through and they listed it. They said squirrel, they said raccoon, snake, bat. You need to have a structural pest control license. That's actually in their law. It is not a rule that was made by their regulatory authority for wildlife. <laughs> it's a law that was made by their legislature. Okay, so before you can change any law, the first thing that you need to do is find out, is this a law that needs to be changed by the legislature, or is this a rule that can be changed by the regulatory authority? Once you know what that has, now that's going to dictate your second step, because if it's a law that needs change, you're probably going to have to get a lobbyist. You're probably going to have to get one, if not two, sponsors for your um, house and or Senate. You're going to have to have a bill written. It's going to have to be introduced and put to a committee and then debated and researched, and then it's going to have to be presented and voted on. If it is a rule from the regulatory authority, it can be something as simple as literally going into there, typing out the way that it should read, and submitting it for approval. And every state is different. <clears throat> Any other questions on that? I'm going to have to just do some research. <laughs> there you go. And that's where it starts. And this is where what needs to happen is you need to get on Facebook on the um, business site there. This is my recommendation. And post that, hey, we want to have a get-together of everybody in the state via, via phone. I mean, talk to you like this is a perfect way to do this a lot of times. Um, that way you don't have to worry about people driving. If there is already an organization in your state, then you need to see, is it active, is it not active? If it's not active, what do we need to do to get it active? And the majority of the associations that are not active, it's simply because we don't have enough people willing to invest <clears throat> their time into the success of the organization. It's just like your business. If you don't invest the time and effort into it, how can you possibly expect it to succeed? Yeah. Well, I don't know how other states are, but it, you know, it's South Carolina is, I would say, and I'm, I'm trying to be polite, extremely lax. If you, uh, you know, everything about nuisance wildlife is in two paragraphs on the state website. 
and then everything, all of our regulations fall under the um, fur harvesters. So, mm-hmm. it, but what's but what's messed up is that they're really, if you talk to 10 people in South Carolina about the laws, you'd get 10 different interpretations and that they'd all be right, if that makes any sense. And well, there's just and not a regress. That's common with a lot of states. Ohio was very similar until what happened with us is an organization actually put into the legislature a bill to create a wildlife control license. And we've been trying for 10 years to get the wildlife control industry separated from the fur trapping industry because we have different tools and devices that we would like to use that we know are effective in resolving these conflict problems that the states don't want fur takers for whatever reason to be able to access. Because yeah, that's what DNR said is tax that's really considered, you know, for your fur trappers. It's okay for you to use a, you know, it's okay for you to use a con of air. We just don't want to see, you know, these harvesters out there using that. So and it's there's like, a lot of states that do that. There's a lot of municipalities that say you're not allowed to trap in our municipality, but that does not mean that a wildlife control operator cannot put out a cage trap. The problem with all this is if you get an exception, like what we're talking about with the body gripping traps, you need to make sure that you get it in writing. Because if you don't have it in writing and something happens and you get a ticket for it or you get charges pressed against you for it, if you don't have a document that you can say, here's my authority to do this, you're going to be found guilty. You know, and based upon each state and the severity of the offense, the way that a lot of these states are right now, and again, I'm going to pick on Ohio here. Ohio now is part of the um, conglomerate of states that says that if I lose my license for doing wildlife control work in the state of Ohio, I potentially lose the ability to hunt and trap in the other states that they have an agreement with. So not only are we talking about potentially losing a livelihood, you're also talking about not being able to go to another location, be it for business, be it for pleasure, or even working for another company. Yeah. I am so glad I'm in Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Indiana has one of the best programs. I was going to say, we worked really hard to get what we've got here. And I'm just so glad did. I am not dealing with everybody else. <laughs> I see you guys complain about your states all the time, and I just wonder, why don't they do it the same way we do? <laughs> well, but the worst part is I'm in both Ohio and Indiana. <clears throat> oh, you're just having the fun down there. Oh, yes. We, we've we been around for so long. I mean, we helped write our permit test. We were one of the original holders, so I mean, we're really deep in our inner area, and we know what we're doing. So, but I don't I know why other states still can't. has some screwy laws. Oh, it's we still got some really screwed up stuff, like it's enforcement. Little, you know, well, your twelve-hour removal of an animal once notified is ridiculous. Oh yeah, you know, but it's something After that sixty years you guys that's have to deal with. Really happens though, either. <laughs> well, I really do like uh, the test for. Uh, Oh, how? Because you can do it online. 
Yeah, there are some states don't even have tests, don't even require permits. Right. And those are the guys that are giving us the black eye. Not all in South them. Carolina, you have to have a business license. That's it. And, and you have to maintain your uh, uh, hunting license. That's it. Wow. Well, the majority of states are going to be, first off, when you talk about business, and a lot of people don't understand that there are business laws. And really, even in terms of setting your prices, your warranties, that type of thing, everybody should go to their Secretary of State website, go to the Attorney General site from there, and in most states, they have the listing there of what a business can and cannot do. So anybody that thinks that businesses don't have rules that we have to follow is 100% wrong. Secondly, in all the states that I'm aware of, you have to register with the state if you are charging a fee. Now, that registration has different levels with it. And so, for instance, if I decided to go ahead and um, start up a company or perform work in Kentucky, not only do I have to pass the Kentucky test and other Kentucky laws, that's for catching the animal. But for conducting business, I have to register as a foreign corporation in the state of Kentucky. And that's with the state of Kentucky. Same thing I had to do with Ohio. So, and, and that is a business portion of it that a lot of guys don't even think about. A lot of people, you know, when you talk about people giving us a bad name, it's really people that don't know anything about business or about the wildlife law because all they care about is how can I make money quickly and go out and do whatever I want with that money. That's funny. Okay, you want to hit on hit on uh, some of your training courses there with uh, WCT? Sure. Okay. Uh, coming up this year, uh, what we have is the next course that we have going on is an introduction to wildlife control that's going to be held down in South Carolina. Uh, that course, whereas it's geared towards the person new to the wildlife control industry, um, it, it's still my belief system is that you can learn from a training session, provided you put forth the effort to learn, even if you're learning how not to do something. Uh, and it's very important that everybody listening to this understands that I'm not saying that my way is the only way to do something or that my way is 100% correct all the time. It's not. It is simply my way. It's also why for some of my classes, I really do try to bring in additional instructors so that you can get different viewpoints from different individuals. But what we'll be talking about are the basic uh, common animals, such as raccoons, skunks, possums, squirrels. Uh, we're also going to be talking about really the animal damage side of it, where there's a lot of people in the industry right now that have no trapping background. They don't know how to set a body gripping trap. They don't know how to set a foothold trap. And so we want to address some of this um, in this training session, how you set it, how you select it, uh, what uh, site location, you know, what you should be looking for. 
Because the most important thing to know about with all this stuff is to know that you don't know and realize that there's a whole network of help out there for the taking. And most people, it's ask a question and you'll get an answer back. So it's one of the benefits of our industry. For the most part, everybody's willing to help out the next person. In a lot of industries, you don't see that happening. So that's the next training we've got coming up, and that's in the middle of April. Then we're also going to have an introduction to air rifles training session. Um, I'm currently in negotiations with Crosman. It looks like the training session is going to be up in New York at their facility, so we can also go ahead and get a tour to see how certain air guns are made. Um, and finding out how to implement that into a wildlife control business Air guns are becoming more and more popular. Um, one of the problems I'm seeing with air guns is that the hobbyist is being told, buy an air gun, solve your own um, test problem. Again, nothing about these are what the laws are. So case in point, here in Ohio, outside <laughs> of hunting season, and you have to have a hunting license to do this, you cannot shoot a rabbit. So if you have a rabbit conflict that you're addressing and you're having problems with them getting into the cage traps or the box traps, you're not allowed to shoot them. And that's a major issue that homeowners aren't going to understand. So that's, you know, something that we need to address on the wildlife side. And then once we do that, we need to start getting the information out to all of these other individuals that are saying, oh, you got squirrels eating food out of the bird feeder, just shoot them with the pellet rifle. Well, in a lot of places, that's going to be illegal. <laughs> and people need to know that. And that's going to be in the July time frame. Uh, I'm actually trying to see if I can get this to go possibly in conjunction with the NTA convention, since that's also going to be held up in New York. Maybe take a couple days, uh, like a day and a half, two days, to do the air rifle training in Bloomfield, which is where Crosman is located, if this works out, and then be able to go over to where the convention is for the remainder of the time. Then in September, we have a uh, bat workshop short course. This is different than my regular bat workshop, which is a five-day course. This is only a three-day course. We're not going to do a lot of the hands-on that we normally do with the building materials and how to fix structures because I'm trying to bring down the pricing on it and make it more affordable for people that would like to get into bat work so they can understand what's involved with doing this type of work. Uh, as of right now, I do not have the WTC seminar scheduled for this year. Um, I am trying to negotiate a deal where that's not going to be until the end of February of 2016. I'm also not putting on the wildlife control exclusion class this year because we're doing the bat class. And generally, I swap those uh, one-year bats, one-year exclusion. And then we also have our training DVDs on top of this. You're a busy man. <laughs> Where in South Carolina are you all going to be doing um, your event? You know, I think it's called Somerville. Yeah, I Eric know. Eric Cole uh... is going to be helping me with it. And it's down his way, and I just don't know South Carolina well enough to know for sure if I'm in the right city. Ain't, ain't that the I, I know, I, No, I know, I know Eric. That's in Somerville. I know Critter. 
Everybody knows Eric. <laughs> if you well, don't, you have to know him. Rock. <laughs> oh, Mr. McCool, huh? Yeah. Everybody knows him. Oh, there's no Mr. in that. It's Critter. Hey, I'm being hey, nice. It's Critter okay. McCool. It's Critter McCool, not put, Mr. McCool. Hey, I put Mr. hey that's trademark, nice. guys. <laughs> and anybody that's not heard Eric speak before, he's very energetic. Um, puts on a, a lot of real good classes that are, are pretty entertaining. Uh, and if you ever, for some reason, want to waste a couple hours, just ask him how many diseases he's had related to wildlife. <laughs> I, I heard him speak over at one of the seminars. He's a good man. Yeah, I had lunch with him a few months ago. I try to I try to have lunch with all my competition at least, you know. <laughs> Every now and then. Well, that explains why so I've never eaten with anybody. <laughs> that explains what? What did you say, Will? That explains. That what? explains why I ain't never met anybody. You gotta have competition <laughs> first. <laughs> okay, Will, I'll come down your way. <laughs> come on over. Let's see what you can do. <laughs> yeah, I'm near there. <laughs> the other side of the state. <laughs> hey, earlier when he said one to five thousand um, wildlife technicians, I thought he was talking about just the state of South Carolina. So. <laughs> I'm only two hours away from you. <laughs> know that? Oh yeah, I know where you're at. <laughs> yeah, I'm over in Bloomington. Oh, what um, what does the courses cost? If you could talk about a cost on that. Each one of them is different. Um, I don't have a course or a price yet for the uh, air rifle course because that's still in negotiations with where it's going to be. Uh, as well as um, can we come down in price because of Crosman being involved with it. Um, and with the air rifle course, one of my main issues is also making sure that we have shooting time so that everybody who attends is going to be able to try out different uh, Crosman rifles uh, with the PCPs, the different calibers, the brake barrels, so that they can see what the difference actually is and not just hear about it or read about it, but feel the difference. I think that that's extremely important. For the course in South Carolina, uh, the rate for that is $250. However, if you register before the 1st of March, I do have a discount rate on it, and I believe it's $200 is what it is instead. Mm -hmm. And you can sign up for that course either on our website, which is wctmagazine.com, Go to the training link on there. There's a PayPal uh, option to sign up there. Or you can go to our online store, which is mkt period com forward slash wct hyphen group hyphen inc. Uh, and the simplest way to do that is just look in the magazine. Because <laughs> it's in writing in the magazine, and you can see what you need to type in to get to it. Um, for the bat course, I don't have a price for that yet um, because the normal course would have been $1,400 to do the five-day course. I am really trying to bring that down closer to the $350, $400 range. But, again, I don't have my host hotel set up yet. I don't know what restrictions I have with that hotel, so I don't have a price for that. Okay. Um, I was also snooping around on your page, and it looked like you had uh, 
I don't know if you want to call them informational pamphlets or books. Am I wrong on that, or? Oh, I. You might be wrong, but I'm not quite sure. Can you give me more information? <laughs> well, I just thought, I didn't know if they were a how-to book, you know, for say like how to trap beaver, um, the types okay. of equipment. It, 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 am I wrong on that, or? I do not have any how-to booklets as of this time. Okay. Um, there are things that we definitely are working on along those lines. Uh, we are working on best management practices to go ahead and do. Uh, we were offering sales pamphlets and consumer information pamphlets that explain certain situations or diseases. Um, we just never really got a lot of acceptance for those, and so we've kind of discontinued doing them. However, if somebody's interested in that, definitely they can contact me and I can see, you know, is this something that we can do again or not. Okay. Like I said, I was just snooping around and trying to dig up some info to, to question you on, and I had seen that. So uh, being that I brought it up, I just wanted it clarified. Yeah, what we definitely have is we have the back issues of WCT Magazine, uh -huh. um, and we have all of them in digital format. We don't have them all in paper format. So we even have collections with those. Um, anybody interested in the back issues, what they are is there's for everything from 1994 through, I believe it's 2008, is a... Um, and copy of the printed magazine that's put together in a PDF format. From 2009 on, and these haven't been put up online yet, um, they're the true PDF files. They're not scanned copies. So that's it. I might have just messed up on my years here with that, uh, but I know up to 2008, because there's three collections, they're five years each. And on each of those collections, it's their scanned copies put into a PDF format. They're not searchable, unfortunately, but they do have um, a overall table of content so you can go through and it's broken up by species. So if you're interested in raccoons, for instance, you can go to that collection, pull up the catalog menu, find raccoons, read down through there and say, okay, here are the issues that have the raccoon articles. Okay. Um, we also talked, you and I talked the other night about um, trail cameras. You want to, I know you're kind of geeked on that a little bit. You want to kind of <laughs> touch base on that or? Well, I, I'm geeked on a lot of stuff, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> um. I can definitely talk about trail cameras if guys are interested in them. Um, the first advice I would give is to get the November-December 2014 issue of WCT Magazine because I've got like a five-page article on them in there. Okay. Uh, and to me, that's a real good starting point because it can eliminate a lot of the backstory that you need to know. And I'm not going to go into the backstory here. Um, mainly because my brain's not going to let me tonight. <laughs> Instead, what I'm going to talk about with trail cameras, if this is okay, I mean, if people have questions, definitely, I, 
I'm more than happy to try to answer a question. If I do not know an answer, I have no problem saying I don't know. Um, But what you want to look for with the uh, trail camera for wildlife control work, there's really three main criteria for it. The first criteria is it needs to be able to take a picture because if it can't take a picture when you tell the camera to take a picture, you're always going to be wondering, is that camera working or is it not working? Did something happen with the camera network? Did something happen with the camera itself? Uh, Did somebody steal the camera? So the only way that you're going to know for a fact, if you have something in the trap, if that's how you're using it, which is how most people that would be using trail cameras are going to use them, you need to have what's called an SMS function on the camera where you can send it a command and it's going to go ahead and take a picture and it's going to send that picture to you. The second thing I'm going to recommend for anybody is to make sure that you get what's called a 3G camera. The older cameras, and this is some of the back stuff I don't want to get into because it's technical and boring and, again, my brain's not going to handle it all. Basically, cameras that were made before 2014, the majority of them are not going to be 3G cameras. What that stands for is the generation of network that your signal is being carried on. AT&T is changing their 2G network, which is what it used to be, to a 3G network. When that happens, it means that anybody that has a cellular camera working on the 2G network is no longer going to be able to transmit images over the 3G network. So if you're going to go out and buy a camera, I highly recommend buying it for the 3G. I don't recommend the 4G cameras because the 4G coverage just is not there. Okay, 3G cameras pretty much now, or coverage is pretty much throughout almost all of the continental U.S. So it's a camera that if you invest in, you should get lots of years of use out of. And these cameras aren't cheap. last thing you want to do is spend $500 for a camera to find out that you have to just go ahead and hang it on a tree and and go out and pull the card yourself. And then the third thing that I'm going to say look for is you want to be able to send, in my opinion, images when the camera fires to at least or have the ability to send it to at least two different phone numbers and two different email accounts. And a lot of cameras on the market that can do this, they're going to limit you to either one phone number, zero phone numbers, emails only, and some cameras have zero phones and only one email. And the reason why you want the multiple is because you're able to go ahead then and send an image to your client. It's the same image that you get. And for instance, I'm allowed on properties that I would never be allowed on without these cameras because the cameras, when the the trap is fired off, the club that I'm working at, for instance, they get the same image that I get to know that I have an animal. On top of that, when I go out to tend that trap, they're getting a picture of me tending the trap. So they know I I was on their property. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's to me, one of the best trap check methods that are out there. It is not a silver bullet. 
there are definite downsides to the trail camera. Um, and there are some new cameras that came out on the market this year. They do have a couple 4G cameras like I was talking about. They also have um, some newer cameras by it's, uh, it's HCO with the Ghost Spartans that will work on the Verizon network. The majority of trail cameras available only work on the AT&T or T-Mobile network. So if you're looking at getting a cellular trail camera, really the first step is finding out what's the network coverage in your area. Again, you don't want to spend $500 for a camera to find out that you can't use it. Correct. Then, like I said, if you look at the three, to me, these are major criteria with the first one and the highest one being able to fire off the camera to take its image when you tell it to. Okay, then getting into the other criteria such as the two phones slash two emails, the 3G network. Um, if you can't do that, as far as I'm concerned, the camera's worthless. Okay. Uh, anybody have any questions? About the only thing I could probably add to that is you also have to make sure when you're using trail cameras like that that your state even uh, acknowledges that as a trap check, too. Right. They do not do that here. And the other thing is, is talk to your insurance company in case they get stolen. Yeah, that's like well, the insurance. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, for the insurance, insurance is just a matter of what's your policy. Do you have an equipment policy and did you list it on the equipment? Right. Okay. And a lot of these cameras, these newer cameras, they do have a location finder on them because of theft. And as long as you can get triangulation through three cellular towers and the camera is on, they can pinpoint where the camera is. Now, as for is it legal in your state, this is actually a huge debate question. And it's something that I will always argue that unless your regulations specifically state that you have to physically touch your trap in order for it to be considered a trap check law, these cameras fit the bill because you have physical evidence to prove that you check the camera, whereas if you just drive out there, there is no physical evidence that you check the camera. So just because your state does not specifically say that remote trap check equipment is legal does not make it illegal. Again, well, I was more referring to actually check with your state because I have here, and they do not acknowledge that as being And what check. state are you in? Indiana. Indiana does. Yes, Indiana does. Not the last time I talked to Lena. Uh, well, talk <laughs> to Tim Julian. Huh? Because I know for a fact that Indiana does, according to Tim. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the new one I passed. It's. Well, you guys can use the Trap Smart system, you can use Trap Alert, or you can use Trail Camera. Because I used the, I used the camera. Say, I, I've asked if we could use Trail Cameras to check traps, and we were shut down when I asked at that time. But honestly, well, yeah, that has been a couple of years. So I mean, yeah, if it's well, changed. This, if it's changed recently, I I don't know about that. But, well, this year because they just did come out with the cellular cameras not too long ago, so. 
I mean, when I was checking, it's when they had the ones you plug into the phone lines and everything. Right. Because when I asked right. her, she sent me uh, the regulations, the new regulations. And it's we get those there. with our permits each year. Right. It's in there now. And that's a real good point is you have to be careful when you're asking for permission because a lot of these people that you're asking, they really don't understand what you're talking about. So if you phrase the question, can I use a cellular trail camera as a trap check method, in their mind, they're still going to think that, well, that means that you have to go out, pull out the SD card, stick it onto a device to see the images, so absolutely not. That's not going to be considered a trap uh, check At method. that point in time, I think the exact question was, are we allowed to use remote cameras to be able to check traps without – because it was even remote. It's when that trap alert system came out, the cellular alert, all that good it's, stuff. Well, and trap alert and trap smart, bear in mind, are not sending an image. No, but it's just a remote notification. Exactly. And that's, again, where you have to get into what does your law actually say. And to me, it's a little bit easier, I think, to get permission to use the trail cameras because you have a picture. You know, on the flip side, most of the departments do not understand the technology behind Trap Smart or Trap Alert. They don't understand that there are fail-safes built into that system. So if the system cannot tell whether or not the door is open or closed, it's going to send a false positive, and it's going to assume that the door is closed because what it's saying is that somebody needs to go out and check the system. Yeah. Okay, but that's where for Trap Smart and Trap Alert, it's definitely more beneficial to have your regulations state that you're allowed to use electronic trap monitoring devices. On the flip side of the coin, when it comes to cellular trail cameras where you are receiving a picture specifically when you punch in the code to take a picture, a lot of states will not specifically state that those are legal. But my point is, is that they are because unless your state says you need to physically touch the trap, if it is a visual inspection, there you go. This is a visual inspection. You just have to be smart with it. You have to make sure that your image is showing the trap and you're either able to see inside the trap to see if there's an animal or at least be able to see was the trap fired off. Yeah. You also have to keep in mind that argument can be taken back to the Conover argument too, that unless it specifically states something, it can be taken two different ways. <laughs> Just well, because we drove there and didn't check it, I mean, they could still argue the other way. <laughs> Well, and that's why I made the comment early on. The problems with our laws is that we are guilty and we have to prove ourselves innocent. Yep. That's and that. the Conabare statement, you're getting into a legal issue where Conabare is a specific type of body-gripping trap. It's a name brand. It is not a body-gripping trap. It's the same issue you have with some places that say you're not allowed to use a steel-jawed trap. Well, if I can't use a steel-jawed trap, what can I use? Does that mean that um, a soft-catch trap is legal? Or because they're still in the jaws, it's not legal. You're getting into the nitpicky stuff that guys don't like to talk about, 
But this is where you need to be fighting your battles. It's where the game departments don't want to go because this is how ludicrous this is. In the state of Ohio right now, and in a lot of states, Indiana is one of the exceptions. <laughs> I'm going to throw that out right now. <laughs> it is illegal to hand catch animals. Really? Yes. It is illegal to use a catch pole. Fuck wow. you. Because the way our law is written is we are only allowed to use the devices put forth in our rule. And our rule is you can use cage trap, you can use foothold, you can use encapsulated footholds, you can use body gripping traps, and you can use snares. You cannot use any other device legally. Wow. You now, are you ever going to get a ticket <laughs> for something along these lines? More than likely not, because to get a ticket means somebody has to complain an investigation has to happen, and somebody has to be stupid to write it. <laughs> yeah. But if, if you want to get technical with the law, and if you have somebody who has a bone to pick with you and says, hey, I saw this guy, you know, grab a, a flying squirrel that was running around the house by his hand, he's not allowed to do that. Or better yet, say, you know, I saw a guy put a net over top of a bat, grab the bat, stick it into a jar. He's not allowed to do that. Well, technically, they're right. But when it comes down to this, the game officer may have to write you a ticket. But just because you have a ticket doesn't mean that there's going to be a prosecutor who's willing to prosecute it. And if you do have a prosecutor willing to prosecute it for something like this, that's the stuff that you need to fight. And you need to fight by going into the judge and saying, this is why I did it. And if the judge rules against you, you pay the 20 or $40 fine. You don't need to do a $25,000 lawsuit to prove a point. Okay, anything else? Anybody got a question? Uh, Jeremy Howard here. Okay. I just have a, I just have a question. Actually, regarding what you just said about the uh, catch poles, you said you can't use a catch pole in, uh, in the state of Ohio. I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm just curious. Would, uh, wouldn't, the, wouldn't the catch pole still be considered a snare? Well, it depends. You have to take a look at what the definition of snare is. And since a snare cannot be attached to a movable item, it has to be attached to a fixed item, even if it's classified as a snare, it's an illegal snare. Oh, okay. You know, and that's where you need to take a look at it. What's your definition for a lot of this stuff? For instance, a catch pole does not have a relaxing lock on it. Correct. At least most of the ones I've seen don't. Okay, so that right there does not make them a snare. It doesn't qualify. If you have a catch-all pole or a tomahawk, you may have a plastic casing around the wire. Well, that might not be legal in your state. Okay, it might be that uh, you have to have bare steel, and it might not even be called a snare. It might be called a cable restraint. 
you might have a size criteria, or you might even have a, is this 7 by 7? Is this 1 by 19? He's talking about the size of the cable, the, the style right. of cable, if nobody's aware of that. Well, if you're not aware of it, you need to come to my training. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually a good point because that's the problem that you're going to have talking to a lot of regulatory authorities. You can use, which for people with a fur background are going to be common terms, such as 22160. 155, 110, and the people enforcing the law have no clue what you're talking about. They don't know what is the jaw spread. They don't know that you're talking about a body gripping trap. And, you know, for South Carolina, for instance, something else to take a look at is if it says no conna bears, great, but if that's being enforced as no body gripping traps, and that means that rat and mouse snap traps are not legal either unless there is an exemption written for them. It also means that out-of-sight mole traps cannot be used. I'll tell you yeah. what, those, those uh, COs in Maine, uh, them guys are up on their game there. I wouldn't want to live there, I'll tell you that. Well, and some of them are. But unfortunately, there's a good number that are not. Well, I uh, would you mind um, somebody contacting you for some help getting some things started in a state? I'm sure Eric would be very interested. Um, I'm sorry, Critter would be very interested. <laughs> and, uh, but because it, it is something I, I would like to see, um, just some things changed. Um, you brought up the, you brought up the uh, mouse and rat traps, uh, and that's a perfect example. I can't remember if it was on the WC, um, BB or if it was a different one, but somebody posted how in South Carolina, um, a, a pest control operator can't put out a rat trap for rats in an attic without a special license. And so I, when I immediately, when I heard that, I, I went I went to the DNR, and, and they were like, we've never heard of that before in our life. That's just crazy. And I, he goes, you need well, to call Clemson. And Clemson handles ours. So I called Clemson up, and he said, do you use um, any kind of pesticide or adenocide? I said, no. He said, you don't fall under our purview then. He said, everything you do goes under um, DNR. He's like, if you're going to... If you're going to start applying pesticides, then yes, you're going to have to get a license to put a rat trap right. in an attic. And I, he goes, but as long as you don't put pesticide or rodenticide out, he goes, you don't. It doesn't matter what you do to us. I don't. I, we don't. We don't have anything to do with you. I'm like, okay, but, great. Well, and that's because this is how most of this works. Most animals are managed through either a division of wildlife or a department of wildlife and fishery. They're the ones that have control. And a lot of pest control applicators believe it's the Department of Agriculture that has control. And the, the correct answer is no, they do not. They have received permission from the other regulatory authority, and this was one of the big problems in Florida. Because in Florida, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries didn't want to regulate the wildlife, so they turned it over to 
their uh, Department of Agriculture or whoever does the pesticide stuff in Florida. Okay, but for instance, in Ohio, the way our law currently works is if you are going to put out a glue board, a snap trap, or rodenticide for mice, you must have a commercial nuisance wild animal license. The person who is putting out the device must have taken and passed the commercial nuisance wildlife operator test and have a certificate. And if you're going to use rodenticide on top of it, you also have to be licensed as a commercial applicator or working under the license of a commercial applicator. So what my whole point is, is a lot of people think that, oh, I'm allowed to do this with a raccoon, so that means that I can fix the damage that the raccoon did. Absolutely not. You have to take a look at what your laws are and see what are the other laws that affect it. Just because you have a commercial applicator license for your state does not necessarily guarantee or give you the right to put out a cage trap for a raccoon. Okay, so in terms of setting up organizations, I'm more than willing to help anybody who has questions with this. Go ahead and get started. I actually have programs with WCT where we have discounted subscription rates to organizations for their members as well as for attending the trainings. They also qualify for discounted rates. And it's my way of giving back to the industry because, again, this comes back to how I started our conversation tonight. It's all about local stuff. It's all about getting your state organized and being proactive so that we have an industry. Um, I, I got a question here from uh, Ray Harley, uh, Intrepid Wildlife Service. Uh, no questions from Ray. Oh, no questions. <laughs> Ray's cut off. Uh, he wanted to know about the white nose syndrome. Is there any other updates or not tos, how tos? Um, there's definitely some updates going on with it. I know that there's going to be a panel discussion with this at the Wildlife Expo. Uh, I am not up to date with a lot of the new findings uh, concerning white nose and what's going on with it. So I'm not exactly sure what Ray's asking for. Um, the concern that I have with white nose is that the media lately has been running all kinds of stories about bats are recovering from white nose, the crisis is over, that type of thing. And, and it's just not a viewpoint that I agree with. I don't think that there has been enough time to actually come to those um, conclusions. Because just because they're seeing bats come back to a cave that the majority of bats were wiped out of does not mean that this bat itself is not infected, will not become infected. It just says that there's a bat back in a cave. <laughs> yeah, they had a big write-up here in our Michigan, I'm from Michigan, uh, paper about a lot more that has died off this past winter. Uh, all they really want is input on the count of how many bats uh, and where the location is. And it's up to the homeowner uh, slash landowner to discard of any of the bats. They don't want nothing more to do with them. 
and did they give any type of uh, protocol for dis- disposal of it? Uh, they just basically said to put it in a garbage bag and it can go to your local landfill. Okay. And, and see, that's the stuff I'm really not up on. I know that, uh, what, about two weeks ago now, there was a big thing about white nose up in Michigan. Um, but when you take a look at the most recent findings, they're finding that the fungus is on the bats that appears for uh, possibly several years before they start actually showing that telltale white symbol. Um, right. The fungus itself is a very unique fungus. So it, they've got all kinds of tests that they're doing now. Um, whether or not this is ever really going to affect our industry, and I know there's a lot of people out there that disagree with my statements with this, but I am seeing more for our industry because of white nose as a benefit than I'm seeing as a detriment at this point. And that has because it's a catch word with the public. More of the public is actually watching their houses and finding bat problems and then calling to have something done about it. Yeah, you also wanted to know if anybody had any information on the little brown bat found in the northeast, which I think you would be talking like New York. Information in terms of, uh, I don't know why Ray just doesn't text me this. He's got my number. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's on the program. Um, he can hear what we're saying, but he just... Uh, oh, that's why I said it to him. I'm sure he'll okay. call me tomorrow. There you go. Um, if he's talking about, and this might be what Ray's bringing up, um, the little brown bat uh, has been recommended for listing on the Endangered Species Act. Uh-huh. Now, they listed earlier last year the northern long-eared bat. Um, they're actually looking at making a change to that listing and possibly dropping it back down to the threatened list. But for guys that don't understand how serious this is, in a nutshell, what it comes down to on these listings is something called the, and my brain just died. (laughs) Um, It's the critical habitat, okay? Because what they do with endangered species is they take a look at all the research that's been done. They discuss whether or not there's a benefit for doing this. Is there a need for doing this? But more importantly, what they do is they establish the habitat required for the survival of the species, and they basically make hands-off for that habitat. So if this would ever happen, here's the impact that this can have. Little brown bats could get listed on the ESA, and if critical habitat is defined as structures that people live in, in essence, that could shut down bat work for the industry. Best case scenario, if that happens, and you have to realize that little brown bats are found in 49, I'm sorry, 40, what is it? It's 47 out of 48 states. Okay. Um, So, and actually they just found them up in, in Alaska, if I remember right, so it should be 49 or 48 states that were found. Anyways, they're found basically everywhere. (laughs) Okay. And if they get listed on the ESA, and if structures are listed, states at that point are going to have to go ahead and say when a bat conflict happens, 
either you're going to have to have the training to be able to distinguish the species and fill out this report and request a special permit in case there is a little brown bat in there, or they're going to say you're going to have to wait for our bat biologist to come out, inspect the structure, determine whether or not this is a county you can work on, and when you're allowed to work on it. Now, as bad as that is for people in our industry, it's even worse for the bats. Because what's going to happen with the homeowners when they find this out is they're going to go, well, I'm not going to tell anybody I have bats. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get 25 cans of flea spray. And I'm going to go up to the attic when they're sleeping, and I'm going to set off all of these cans of flea spray. And they're going to kill the bats. And since the bats are the symptom of the problem, the house itself is the problem, what that means is that at some point in the future, more bats are going to come into this homeowner's house, and they're going to do the same thing again and kill all these bats. Then it is going to turn into a serious problem. It's the same issue I have with, you know, you're telling me that we cannot perform bat work in certain states from the 1st of May through the 1st of September, but yet there's no restriction whatsoever on a contractor pulling off a roof and replacing a roof during maternity season. And yet, how many more roofs are being replaced than we're doing bat jobs? You know, it's not even close comparison-wise. If you take a look in the phone book, and I believe I put this in the magazine, if not, it's coming in the magazine, <laughs> um, where in Cleveland, Ohio, which is close to where I am, I did a search for wildlife control operators. Well, first they did a search where I'm actually at, which is Medina, Ohio. And if I remember right, for wildlife operators on uh, Super Pages Yellow Book, it came up with, I think it was, we're just going to say 20 individuals. Yet when I searched for contractors, it came up with 144. Then I went to Cleveland, Ohio, because that is a major metropolitan area, and I did the same search in the same program. For wildlife control operators, and this includes the pest control companies, I believe it came up with about 218, if I remember right. But when I did it for contractors, it came up with about 1,500. Now, take a look at the average contractor, the roofing contractors. How many roofs do they do a year? You know, it's not 10. It's not 20. And if you're doing 30 bat jobs a year where you have a colony or 100-plus bats, you're doing a crap load of work, no pun intended. <laughs> okay, there's very few guys who can do those numbers. If you're saying that you're doing 50 or 100 bat jobs a year and you're talking about going out and grabbing the individual bat out of the home, that's a totally different subject. I'm not referencing that. I'm talking about performing exclusion services for maternity colonies where they fight to get back inside the structure. And if you're doing 30 of those a year, you're doing a very large number of maternity colonies because they take a lot of time, they take a lot of work to get done. Okay? Now, how many of these contractors, once again, are ripping off roofs, they're ripping off siding? 
most roof projects are done in what? Two, three days time? Yeah, with most, a good crew. Yep. Exactly. How long does it take for a bat exclusion job if you've got 100 bats there? On the slow side of it, I'm going to say seven days. On a more realistic side with callbacks and everything else included with it, it's probably going to take you from start to finish, even though you're not out there every single day, it's probably going to take you closer to six to nine weeks. So who's really affecting the bat population? Well, it's also, like here in Pennsylvania, like you were saying, between like the spring and spring and summer, you can't exclude them at all. You can't even touch them. Well, in if certain they, states, not yeah, only can yeah. you not exclude them, you can't even work on the structure that they're in. Yeah. And since yeah. you have multiple types of colonies, I find that absolutely ridiculous. Just like if it's a maternity colony, I see no reason why you still can't do your prep work on the areas that the bats are not using so that when it comes time that you can actually exclude them when the juveniles have become self-sufficient, that all you have to do is a minimal amount of work on that structure. Correct. And again, this comes back to my big point. This is where the states need to start getting organized and start going up and saying, this is ridiculous. You are affecting our businesses. Well, I imagine everyone's, everyone's probably the same story I do. I mean, you get these calls in the spring and summer. They have bats. They hear the bats, you know, up there in their attic, and uh, they want them gone. Well, you say, sorry. <laughs> I can't really do it. Well, I'll, I'll find someone else. Well, you know, you're not going to find well, exactly. you know, at least, Yeah, you know, they'll, they'll call a roofer. They'll call a contractor. They'll come out. They'll steal the holes. And well, that, generally they'll start with a pest control company or they'll start yeah. with a, a competitor of yours. And there are some competitors, and all industries are going to have this, that are not as moral as the other people. And a lot of that is because when they went through their training, if they went through training, they were told that it's fine to do this. Well, uh, Eric, this is Ray. Are you? I figured I'd jump in here. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, um, you're harassing me. I had a question because uh, for some reason that I can't get my questions typed fast enough. But um, <laughs> my question was, it's not showing up. It's not sending through. So I figured I'd call and have a face-to-face, so to speak, over the phone. Um, I have a question regarding um, we, we're dealing with mostly big brown bats. Our little browns are gone. Um, haven't seen them for years. But uh, colon, colonies that seem to be fairly large in 100 plus animal range, and then most of that colony disappearing from a structure at different times during the year. Do you find that to happen very often in your area? That is normal behavior for a big brown bat colony. Okay, first off, your big brown, when you're talking a maternity colony with big brown, you're generally not having the same numbers as you're having with little browns or evening bats. Little browns and evening bats For a maternity colony, the first thing to bear in mind is normally they are limited to one pup per pregnant female. And because they are much more gregarious in nature, you're going to have, generally speaking, 300 to uh, several thousand bats at a time with either one of those colonies. When you're dealing with big browns, the first thing to keep in mind is a lot of these females can have twins. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So you're not going to have the same number of bats. They are not as gregarious in nature as the other species are. And so you might have 25 females, which with the researchers I work with here in Ohio, that's about a standard size for the adults for a colony is 25 to 50 animals. They're then, again, for the most part, let's say that everything actually works with nature the way that Disney wants you to believe. <laughs> Those twins are going to be fine. So if you start with 25 bats in a colony, after those pups are born, you're suddenly going to have 75 bats there. Now, those bats are going to be born hairless. They're going to be born blind. It's going to take for big browns about 7 to 10 days for the hair to come in. But then they're going to be flight capable in 3 to 4 weeks after birth. That's how fast big browns can develop. And they can be self-sufficient in 6 to 8 weeks from birth. It's the same with little browns. Little browns, they develop faster than big browns. But once a little brown is born, it takes two to three weeks for the bats to be flight capable, and it takes six to eight weeks for them to be self-sufficient. So if you have a colony of bats that is born May 15th, those bats are going to be self-sufficient by July. There's no reason in the world why you have to wait until the 1st of September to start removing those animals. On the flip side of the coin, if you have a late birth, which I have seen the last two years here because of the weather, because what's really cool with bats is breeding occurs for the most part in the fall time. They have delayed implantation and delayed fertilization. So when they start coming out of the hibernacula, they're already pregnant. And gestation periods range from about 43 days to 62 days based upon species. So if they come out of their hibernacula, say the 1st of April, and to make math simple, we're just going to say it's a 60-day gestation period, that means that all of April and all of May, the bat um, or gestation is occurring. So your birth, your partition, should happen then right around the 1st of June. And now do your six to eight weeks from that puts you right about the 1st of August. However, if you have a bad weather front come up, take the same example I just used, if those females go back into a hibernative state, gestation actually stops. And so you can have them um, have implantation and fertilization occur the 1st of March or I'm sorry, the 1st of April with the example that I used, if they then go back into hibernation for, say, 14 days, it's no longer the 1st of June when you would expect to see pups. You're not going to see pups being born until the middle to the last part of June. Hmm. And that's what you have to do as a professional. When you get these phone calls, when you do your inspection, you need to pay attention to what was happening with the weather. You need to pay attention to when you can actually see the bats. What is going on with the bats? Are you finding pinkies? If you're finding pinkies, then you know, okay, this is the bat species I'm probably working with. So here's the timetable that I can go ahead and start using with this. If you're not finding pinkies and if you're not even seeing bats, 
you might not even be dealing with a bat colony that's a maternity colony. You might be dealing with a migratory colony. You might be dealing with a bachelor colony. You might be dealing with a feed roost. So again, this is where you need, from my opinion, you need to understand more about the animals you're working with. Too many people say that they're a bat expert and can't even list the bats in their state. And it's a, a personal pet peeve of mine. <laughs> no ands or fours about it, gentlemen, and any ladies listening. Well, but if I've you're going to call yourself an expert, you need to know something about the subject. I understand so where the now, visual. Man? Yeah, I understand the visual aspect of the inspection and trying to determine whether it was a maternity colony or colony or not. But I mean, it's safe to say that you can't physically inspect every area of an attic to find that maternity colony. I mean, I've been surprised before with uh, little ones, and I thought it was maybe a, a bachelor colony, and they just happened to be inside a soffit that wasn't accessible. And I could see the young outside in the evening begging, you know, to the females. And uh, and you may uh, always have that. Don't get me wrong, right? Right. You know, but again, where a lot of people fall short with this, in some states, they actually have this as laws that you need to follow. Is they right. come out, they do an inspection, they don't see anything, but then a bat watch is never performed on the structure. And exactly what you're saying can be the case. These bats could be in a cavity that you don't have access to. We're seeing more and more little browns actually living in the soffit areas than in the attics. Mm-hmm. And if in their, the soffit areas, Majority of time, unless there is, is a guano accumulation there, you're never going to find them. What and you what are your need is you need that bat watch. And what are your recommendations in this uh, this time of year? As far as uh, you know, there are some you know wildlife control operators that are actually putting devices in this time of year. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we receive a lot of calls through the winter with bats in the living space. Doesn't necessarily mean they're outside, but uh, wouldn't you put that excluder off on the outside of the structure and you have it, you know, bat proof well, essentially in the winter, you're vacating the, the colony if it does wake up. And if a bat wakes up, is it dead anyway? What's your thoughts on that? Here's, well, here's your first problem with it at, at any time of the year. Not all bat colonies are going to leave guano that you can find, nor are you going to see any type of rub marks with them. Specifically, big browns, very rarely are you going to see guano accumulations on the side of the structure. You might see it underneath, but you're not going to see it attached to the structure for the most part. And a lot of times you're not going to see any type of oil rubbing on it. So your first question that you have to take a look at is, during the inspection, what type of evidence did you find? Did you find areas that you feel bats can use? and possibly are using, or did you not find any sign whatsoever? Then, if you want to proceed with this as a bat job, if you found nothing, to me, it's err on the side of caution. If you did find evidence and you feel that you know where um, the main travel pathways are, I would have no problem saying uh, you can start, providing that the weather allows you to do this, you can start sealing up the structure. I do not recommend putting up exclusion devices in the wintertime. 
okay? And there's lots of reasons for it. Um, part of those reasons are is based upon where you are in the country, you're going to get different results. If you live down in Georgia at this time of year, you're probably going to encounter more bats inside of a home than you're going to encounter up where you are right in New York. On the flip right. side, does that mean that the bats aren't there for you? Or just does it mean that they're in an area that you can't access? Are they underneath insulation? Are they, you know, tucked up in a corner somewhere where you just can't see them? I don't have an answer for that. You know, what the research says is that most bats are going to move to a cave or mine structure and hibernate in there specifically for the female. Now, I know from the guys out in Minnesota that they keep telling me that every year um, people will be having siding done and there's a colony of bats underneath the siding. I believe them wholeheartedly. You know, bats are very thermodynamic by nature. They need a very specific temperature range in order to survive the wintertime. And I can see where underneath the siding, in certain conditions, may be the best spot for them. But why take the chance of putting up the tubes? And then what do you do if the bats don't go through those tubes? Because first off, you don't know whether or not there's, um, that's a primary access point. Okay, bats are very hard to redirect or funnel to another location. You know, other animals, it's pretty easy to make them go where you want them to go. Bats are pretty stubborn. Bats, if they don't want to go in a certain direction, instead of going that way and getting out, they'll go the opposite direction and look for another exit. Okay, I call that backing up. And anybody who's done any type of bat work for any length of time has experienced the dreaded backup and never wants to experience it again. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Nothing is worse than getting the phone call that instead of, yeah, we watched 100 bats fly out of the house, we have 100 bats inside of the house. It is not a fun thing to go through, but I really think all operators go through it at some point. If you, if you haven't done it, consider yourself lucky, play the lottery, make enough money that you don't have to do this. I've had a lot of but, clients do it. That's all I'm going to say. You know, it's I'm just one of those things that, that it, it happens. You have to learn how to deal with it, but you can protect yourself as much as possible. So on the homes where you can't find anything at this time of year, my suggestion is to wait until the bats start coming out of hibernation, get the bat watches done, identify the key areas that the bats are using, and then start your work. On homes where you cannot identify, this appears to be major travel pathways. I recommend go ahead, if the weather permits, start working on the house, but still do not put up the exclusion devices until they would be coming out of hibernation naturally. You know, don't make the job difficult by forcing the bat to do something it doesn't want to do. Take advantage of the biological programming and work with it. Does that answer your question, sir? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then Without so. giving away too much of my bat class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
keep asking yeah, questions, like you'll get it for free. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you look oh, at that bad, well, let me tell you guys, my five-day class, normally they get about 50 hours of instruction in five days. Wow. So ask any of them that have been to my class. There's lots of times that we started at 8 in the morning and we didn't finish until 11 o'clock at night. Well, Eric, it's been a tremendous show. We have approximately seven minutes left. Is there anything that you would like to touch on yourself uh, or give us some websites or whatever uh, to um, turn people towards you if you'd like? It's, you know, again, for me, the, the two things, and for those of you that don't know me, I do have a wildlife control company. It's called Bass, Birds, and More Incorporated. Uh, I've been doing bat training for quite a few years now, as well as other training, uh, as hopefully some people can uh, hear with our offerings. Um, I was one of the instrumental people in getting the Ohio laws changed because I was invited as a stakeholder to those meetings. So I do have a lot of um, information concerning a bunch of different things. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert in any single one of these things, but in terms of helping people set up organizations, uh, things to take a look at, definitely I'm more than willing to help along those lines. In regard to the magazine, uh, people can definitely subscribe to the magazine. They can find out more information about the WCT training group and the products we offer. Our website is WCT Magazine. Dot com to subscribe to the magazine. You just go to the subscriptions page. And again, we have some online stores there um, with um, other products that we sell, air rifles, night vision scopes, that type of thing. Uh, air rifles are brand new. We just got approved as a dealer here earlier uh, yesterday. So that's going to be something that's coming. The biggest thing aside from what I, the point I keep harping on, which is the, the states need to get organized and they need to work on the local politics and then move forward from that, is with the magazine, I really, really am begging almost for stories from individuals. Submit your pictures, submit your stories to me. I'll take a look at them. If I feel that they're appropriate for the magazine, I'll contact you back and we'll discuss the terms with it, the buying of, of the article, and that type of thing with it. But I, I just I don't want this, and I can't stress this enough. I don't want the magazine to be viewed as Eric's magazine. I want it to be viewed as the industry's magazine. And in order to do that, we need everybody's voice. And the stories can be, you know, informative how-tos. They can be things. Um, we have a bunch of different columns. We have a friends and family column that uh, just started with the November-December issue. Uh, I wrote in there about my father who um, he's had five different types of cancer. And I wrote in there about my five-year struggle to get him a decent buck. And everybody who's got the magazine actually sees on the cover, here's my father's buck. And it's a very big moment for me because it's a 12-point buck that weighed 234 pounds. Um, so it, it, to me, my crowning moment with my father and not knowing how much more time he has left, because 
well, earlier I did an article where I showed a deer that I took uh, on a deer control project that he actually recovered for me, which was 232 pounds. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it, it's one of those things, I, at this, that time, I honestly thought with his health condition that that was going to be the last deer my father and I ever recovered together. And I'm so, so thankful that I was able to go ahead and make something come true for him this year. So anybody who's out there that has stories like that where they would like to honor their family, honor friends, people who have served in the military, and, you know, technicians that you have that, you know, had to go ahead and serve our country, those are fantastic pieces to write about. So don't think that I'm just looking for how do you catch a raccoon. You know, are round body grip traps better than square body grip traps? What's the best case to use? And are positive sets the only way to do it? I still want those types of articles, but don't think that that's what you're limited to. You know, if you went on a great fishing trip blowing off steam because you're so sick of catching animals, write it up because a lot of us can relate to that. You know, there's nothing worse than getting into a field because you love it and then starting to dread it because this is what you do constantly. So... That's what I'm going to kind of leave off here unless you guys have anything else for me. But, you know, again, I really want the magazine to reflect the industry and everybody who's involved in it. I don't want it to be, this is just Eric's, you know, soapbox where he gets to spout off for 48 pages every other month. (laughs) No, I'll give Eric, the magazine is good. Okay, uh, that said, I guess we will conclude our podcast. I'd like to thank Eric Arnold for, uh, ho- uh, not hosting, but being the main guy <laughs> of the show. He might as well have been the host. And, uh, I'd also like to thank my good buddy there, Will, co-host, and myself as Kevin Dan. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody in the audience for participating into this podcast. So that said, I'd like to tell everybody good night, and thanks for joining us. Have a good one, guys. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Good night. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.